Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. You know, the interest in psychedelic medicine, particularly psilocybin, a pro-drug derived from uh, some 200 varieties of so-called magic mushrooms, stems from multiple factors. Notably, decades of research into psilocybin uh, by reputable universities suggest it may offer therapeutic benefits for patients diagnosed with everything from traumatic brain injury to depression to anxiety, PTSD, and similar conditions. For example, back in 2019, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine opened a center for psychedelic psychedelic and consciousness research in Baltimore. It's studying psilocybin as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease, PTSD, smoking cessation, anorexia, depression. Studies also are planned for opioid addiction and post treatment of Lyme disease. You know, and my guest today graduated from uh, uh, Cornell University with a degree in economics. And after graduating college, he worked briefly in the investment banking world before deciding to join the army. He became an army ranger and served three combat tours, uh, three combat deployments. After his military service professionally, he went back into high finance, but personally struggled with severe depression and anxiety. He's the president now and founder of the Heroic Hearts Project, a nonprofit dedicated to educating and connecting veterans with psychedelic treatments options. Mr. Jesse Gold, thanks so much for being a part of today's show, sir. Montel, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to, to meet you and talk with you today. Absolutely. You know, in the last couple of years, um, this topic has be has kind of caught fire. So I'm really glad that we're having an opportunity to give some information out today to a lot of people who are suffering. And, you know, we're also living in a time when, you know, I've been saying this over and over again here on uh, not only Let's Be Blunt, but another podcast I have, it's called Free Thinking, that, you know, what people don't recognize is that though we seem to be coming out of one pandemic we are about to head into, I think, which will be the biggest pandemic facing mankind and has a pandemic of mental health issues that are being suffered by millions in this country and millions around the world. Not only the survivors of, let's say, COVID, who spent days, months, in you know, multiple months in the hospital battling for their lives, but you know, those who were the caretakers from the doctors to the first responders to the nurses. And then we look at, you know, our, our veteran community that literally was, has wallowed on the fence in the last year and a half because so much attention was placed on COVID that we forgot that we're still looking at a veteran suicide rate of somewhere between 19 and 22 a day. And though the civilian suicide rate, which a lot of people are not willing to even address, look at, is somewhere around 130 a day. So... This is something that we're going to be faced with for the next few years. And if there are options out there that heretofore were not considered, you know, legitimate, they're being considered legitimate today. And I'm glad that you're here to talk about them, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree. And if you look at sort of the, the mental health landscape, there really hasn't been huge innovations in the last 40 to 50 years. Um, and what we're dealing with is almost a reemergence of this information. So whether it's cannabis, whether it's psychedelics, a lot of these substances were already studied in the, in the 60s and the 70s, 
but it was because of fears, because of stigmas, because of um, policy, the drug war that just pushed them all underground. And it's, it's somewhat of a tragedy because so many people have been suffering. And to your point, over the last 20 years plus, the veteran community has, has just been decimated by the suicide epidemic. And despite hundreds of billions of dollars going to suicide prevention, suicide awareness, the VA's numbers have not improved. Uh, I think the latest statistic was four out of the five last years, uh, veteran suicides just increased. And so we're fortunate to be living in a time where we're starting to discuss cannabis, we're starting to discuss psychedelics, but it is still very trying that we got to this point where there's such a huge need. It's almost like the cup had to overflow first before we recognize that we need to start looking for other solutions. And we also have to, unfortunately, I say it this way, and I, I, you know, forgive me for those who are listening, but, you know, unfortunately, there are those people out there who have turned this into their own little cottage industry. You know, uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD have all spawned industries that are worth billions of dollars where they have been actually, you know, perpetuating and perpetrating an injustice upon those who suffer by providing, you know, protocols that they know are less than 35% efficacious. And now we are, I think the science is finally starting to catch up in areas like cannabis and psychedelics where, you know, reputable, you know, universities and, and facilities around the world are starting to recognize the value of science that was, as you said, studied back in the 60s and the early 70s, where we recognize the efficaciousness of you know, uh, other agents that would do a better job than some of the stuff that they are shoving down our veterans' throats today. But because, you know, it's a cottage industry, there are those who are deeply entrenched, you know, uh, civil servants and people who have been promoting some of these non-effective treatments that are fighting this tooth and nail. Absolutely. And to your to your point, uh, yeah, people with the antidepressants, antipsychotics, and it, what you see with veterans, it's not uncommon for veterans to be on multiple, multiple medications, which is the biggest tragedy. You know, I know plenty of veterans that go through a program that at some point were on 15, 20 medications, because these things can be so powerful that they cause all these really bad side effects. A lot of them are psychosis, a lot of them are increased suicidal ideation. And this is not to speak uh, bad across the board, you know, there are some medications in moderation that have saved veteran lives, absolutely. But to the, to, at the rate that they are prescribed without sort of the actual monitoring it, uh, or without the openness to viewing other modalities, whether it's, it's psychedelics, whether it's cannabis, or even just wellness of life, that has been the biggest tragedy. Um, and I, for me, I, I, I like how it's almost come for full circle where billions, if not trillions of dollars have gone into fine tuning and developing these chemicals. And now we're coming back to nature where we have these very powerful plants that are, you know, doing the job way better than any of these uh, designer sort of medications have been doing. And I, I know you don't want to say anything disparaging and please, I'm not going to try to force you to do so, but I got to <laughs> say that I'm so sorry. I've been beating my head against the wall with protocols that, um, you know, I've been working on and helping a champion you know, something like something called their RTM program, which we know um, has proven out now to be 90% plus efficacious in remitting almost all symptoms of PTSD, but it goes up against, 
you know, exposure therapy that's been used for 20 years or 15 years in the military and at, at the VA. And those who actually promote exposure therapy have been the biggest, you know, impediment against RTM because they don't want to lose their funding. Absolutely. And that, that comes into play to me to say that, you know, there are people who are out here trying their best to make a living off of other suffering when the truth should be to try to end the suffering. Absolutely. So, you know, let's let's talk a little bit, my friend. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's start about, you know, the beginning of your journey. What made you decide to join the the military after having such a successful career in, you know, in the investment banking world after college? Yeah, so I was pretty early into it, but uh, you know, I was I was surrounded by all these these great intelligent people. I had jobs in New York and you know, at the heart of the financial center of the world. Um, and I really I really enjoyed it, but I also graduated around 2009 which was the big financial collapse. And New York was just, it was, it, was, it was an interesting time to be there, especially in finance where thousands of people lost their job when Bear Stearns, Lehman went under, uh, you know, people were taking their own lives out of desperation. It was, just, it was just a very interesting side and it was all self-inflicted. It was all the result of greed as, as we learn more and more about it. And so I found myself in a spot where I felt very fortunate uh, of having gone to a great university and having been in this position and having sort of that upward mobility. Uh, but I also always had the sense that I wanted to give back to the country that allowed that to happen. And I always had that sort of, you know, internal becoming a man sort of test my metal instinct. And the military just seemed like the right avenue for me to go. And, you know, sometimes the universe aligns where Wall Street was in this sort of devastated mode. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was going to miss much, but it was also this sort of extreme exposure to greed and to self-interest versus what I wanted to create in my life. And so that it became a very clear message of the military might be the best way. And so, you know, I looked into it and saw, um, you know, the special operations unit, and it was very intriguing of, you know, if you want to go in, that's the ultimate way to test yourself against who you are, the you know your mental strength, your physical strength. And so I, <laughs> to the uh, worry of my my family, which kind of came out of left field, but you know fortunately um, it, it brought us all together. And you know I definitely found the what I was searching for through that experience. It definitely developed me into the person that I am today with a much more I think nuanced um, understanding of how the world works and even how our country works. Well, tell us a little bit about your time as an Army Ranger. I mean, you did do three deployments. Yeah, absolutely. So I went in. Uh, I, I wanted to be, from the get-go, uh, a Ranger just because if I was doing this big transition in life, I wanted to be the best trained I possibly could and surrounded by the best as well. Uh, so I went through, went through Airborne, went through Selection, and fortunately was able to pass and got stationed in Savannah, Georgia, uh, 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, and when you, when you get in there, you feel all great about yourself, but then you just start at the bottom rung. And so then it was another learning process, but you know, I got great training. I, I was surrounded by great individuals. Um, I was a mortarman there and, uh, which for people who don't know, it's a high angle trajectory, uh, rocket or explosive, which has a lot of math behind it. So it actually kind of fit well, uh, within mm -hmm. it, but it was just a very interesting experience. All my deployments were. Uh, in Afghanistan, I quickly became a non-commissioned officer because I, I, I enlisted. Um, and so, you know, it put me into this position of this is where your training comes in. This is you have to be a leader. There's no question about it. And so there were a lot of, you know, very profound transitions in 
you know, this is no longer play. This is no longer sort of the college bubble that I was in. This is real life and your decisions and your faith in yourself is what is going to keep you going and also those around you. And so especially as a leader, especially as owning the ground that I walk on, it really was a transformative um, spot. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate. I was surrounded by people. I, I, I wasn't necessarily uh, in, in the, the, the crazy traumatic things that you might see in Hollywood. But no matter what, within, within the, the Ranger deployments, it's a very high action um, sort of commitment when you're over there. You're, you're constantly doing missions. Uh, and so no matter what, for everybody, it does transition your mind, which allows you to survive in a combat situation, but might not be ideal for the civilian uh, world. And so I think that's after when I left the military, that's when I really started hitting walls because I was still sort of, you know, I was, I was uh, molded to be a soldier. I was molded to be a part of this unit and in, in this very high octane, high stress situation. And then when you go into finance on the tail end, those two worlds don't necessarily line up. And so when I got out of the military, that's when a lot of these mental health issues, whether from experiential trauma or uh, from our understanding now, I was exposed to a lot of concussive force from the mortar systems, from door breaches. Uh, so the physical impacts on my brain. But I just talk, found- talk, talk a little bit about that just so people can understand, you know, the breadth of your deployments. I mean, you you were on the front line um, involved in several skirmishes and other other, you know, face to face action, military action. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, for those that don't un, that don't know, Army Rangers are a special operations unit. So, there's a few. Each each um, military unit has their own special operations. So, a lot of people know Navy SEALs. Uh, you have um, Air Force pararescue jumpers. You have Marine Raiders. Uh, in the Army, you have two. So, Green Berets, which is Special Forces, and Army Rangers, and each have their own sort of expertise. So, Army Rangers are the most elite infantry unit in the Army. Uh, and so they're very direct action. Uh, so essentially, rangers will go in. They do raids, ambushes. Uh, around the time I was going in, it's essentially um, you're finding people who are sort of the leaders of the terrorist networks or like the generals or the IED makers that are just causing a lot of chaos in these countries. And so through intelligence, you're trying to locate them, find them. Uh, and uh, disrupts sort of the, the, the networks. And so the, the Army Ranger lifestyle is nonstop. Essentially, we spend half the year training, half the year deploying. And so you're just constantly on this, you know, uh, hamster wheel of, and oftentimes the training is, is more intense than the deployments. Deployments can almost be a, a sort of sigh of relief because the op tempo is, uh, the operation speed is not as high. But no matter now, a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand though. While you're doing these operations, you were there in a combat situation where there are multiple blasts going on around you. People don't understand the idea of traumatic brain injury. The fact that you don't have to literally be blown up by an IED. You can be 50 feet from an IED. You can be 100 feet from, you know, a mortar blast, and still it sends a shock wave across the ground that actually does a shock wave through your brain. Correct. Absolutely. And that's that's kind of the research. Um, I, I suggest people look up Dr. Mark Gordon. He's done a lot of great research about this. And it's just sort of the constant, even if it's micro abrasions to the brain, the constant exposure to that causes some damage, causes some uh, disconnections within the brain. And if it doesn't have time to heal, it compounds, compounds. And so especially in a training environment where we're shooting mortars and that concussive force 
uh, just it almost shakes your brain uh, in, in, in not necessarily a healthy way. But, you know, just the training. So whether it's door breaches, you have that concussive force, you have even high caliber rounds, it's constant um, bombardment of your brain. And so you're seeing a lot of veterans that may not, they might have PTSD, but there's also this whole other dynamic of brain trauma that's not being factored in because it's very underdiagnosed. And so it's almost, it's very similar to what we're seeing with athletes. With athletes, we can kind of comprehend it because, you know, a football player, hockey player, they're hitting their head against other guys. We understand the physical concussion. But what you see with athletes is that there is also a high suicide rate. There's a high depression rate post their athletic career, and it's not being addressed either. And you're seeing very similar symptoms with military veterans because of that exposure to actual things that physically damage uh, the, the brain. So that combined with all the other factors, whether it's chemical exposure, whether it's um, the, you know, traumatic events, the, you know, that cause PTSD and, and just also when you're in this deployed situation, you're constantly on alert. Like you said, there are, even if you're on a secure base, there's mortars always being lobbed in. There's all sorts of different stuff at any given time you're on, on guard. And so in terms of hormone level, uh, your cortisol levels get sort of permanently stuck on this on switch. And so that's why veterans tend to have this hypervigilance. That's why a lot of their hormones get um, unbalanced just because you're in this very artificial situation in this constant life or death uh, mode, which our bodies are not necessarily built to be in for that extended period of time. We're, we're built to have quick reactions to danger, not prolonged reactions to danger. Absolutely. And after your military service, so talk a little bit about what was your, what was it like the transition when you first came back? What was it like to transition back to civilian life? I was, I was, I was ready. You know, I was ready to like pound my chest. Like I had this Ranger background, uh, you know, nothing could stop me. Uh, I was feeling good. I was in good shape. I had my Cornell degree. And so I thought I would just, you know, hit the ground running and, you know, I possibly go into finance, possibly start my own business. I was fortunately able to travel a little bit. And so I just really enjoyed it. Um, but then sort of reality, uh, sunk in of, you know, there's this gap in my career history and especially in finance being infantry does not necessarily, um, add to your resume around, uh, finance. And so I just found it sort of difficult to where I did have a bachelor's degree, but also there's so many bachelor's degrees out there. So it, it actually was a process of finding a job, getting myself out there. And at the same time, it took me a while to actually understand that I was struggling through something for a long time because I was high performing. I could kind of ignore some of this baggage or some of these 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 extra weights that I was carrying that were really slowing me down. And, you know, it would often what would it sort of manifested in, especially in the Ranger life. It's it's work hard, play hard. So alcoholism is a big uh, part of the culture which you can get away with when you're there because you're young and you're fit and you can get up and still run five miles even if you drink far too much. But then when you start going to the civilian world and you have to do sort of a nine to five job, again, these sort of, it's, it's almost these two different bubbles that don't align. And so when I started, when I did find a job, uh, a lot of these old habits and a lot of these um, issues that I was able to ignore for so long really started uh, becoming very prominent in my face and I'd just get to the end of the week after being in this 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 job, this finance job, uh, and just realize that I was starting to become more unhappy more days than I was happy. And this formula is really starting to shift towards this darkness. And it's it 
red flags just started popping off. Well, you know, just I was going to ask you about the fact that you have talked about, you know, the alcohol use and, you know, the fact that you were self-medicating. And probably at the time you thought you were just partying, but you were probably more apt to be self-medicating. There are so many people out there right now who are doing the same thing. They're at home, they're alone, they're medicating, and they don't even realize that they have a problem. I mean, um, what would you say to those people, first off, about what they should start to think about? And I, yeah, I think one of the ways I was able to get around it in my own head is because I was still high performing. And so I could, I'd still show up to work. I was doing a great job. I'd get, you know, compliments from my boss. I'd get everything done. Uh, it's just at night or on weekends, I would, you know, just go far too hard. But I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything right. So why, why can't I unwind or why can't I have a little bit of fun? But that's sort of this delusion that we tell ourselves. And no matter what, health wise, it's, it's, destroying a lot and it's increasing it was increasing my depression uh but two it, it is just sort of this, this escape it is um it's this easy answer that we're not addressing other sort of things and but it's tricky for veterans too because in the same situation that i was in it was okay well i either do this or i go to the va and they they give me a ton of medications and so there wasn't like the alternative because there was a period of time when i did start to realize it where you know, I'd, I'd wake up going to work on Monday and have to have a, a bottle of beer just to kind of, you know, smooth things out and, and be able to go through the day. Um, and there's other times when I'd have to cut out of work because I'd just have such high anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, and so these red flags started coming up. And so I did actually make that conscientious effort to like, hey, this is this this is this is not the life. You can't just do this ranger lifestyle uh, anymore. Uh, and I was just doing the one side of it. I was just the drinking part. I wasn't even like maintaining health or you know, staying active or anything like that. So again, this delusion, but I tried to get back in shape. I tried to pick up a hobby, started cooking. I tried to do, you know, meditation, journaling every morning. And I even went to the VA and they all obviously helped, uh, but I still just couldn't get past this wall. And so I, I really came into this sort of like paradoxical situation of like, all right, well, I know I'm drinking too much. Uh, but I don't, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm like too anxious or stressed out, I just got caught in this loop of like, what else can I do? Like, this is helping me sort of survive right now, which is not the right answer, but I just couldn't figure out a solution out of it. It was either that or kind of medication. And that unfortunately seems to be the situation up until now where a lot of people, if, you know, the, the medication framework or the prolonged exposure therapy doesn't work for them there's not other alternatives that are suggested to them, which is a very tragic uh, sort of offering or, or position that people find themselves in. Well, then you, you must have found yourself sitting in a situation where not, not rock bottom, but you just needed to get out of that cycle. What sent you on a journey to finding out about ayahuasca? So I heard about it around that time. It was right after I went to the VA. Fortunately, so I went to the VA. Like I said, I was at this spot where red flags were showing up, like some sort of internal voices were like, if you continue on this track, you're going to do something that you can't take back, whether, you know, it's some sort of DUI or some sort of health thing or what have you. I just knew the track I was going on would end in something that, that, that I couldn't reverse. Um, and so when I went to the VA, I told them all this stuff of how I was trying to help myself, um, but I was still managing. And they said that, you know, unless I was willing to go on medication, they really couldn't help me. And so 
that was kind of the last straw of like, okay, well, I guess I have to figure this on my own because these professionals are not offering me any viable alternative that uh, alternative to medication. Um, so I heard about ayahuasca during that time. At first, I kind of just cast it off. I had the same stigmas as a lot of people that I encounter today where like, oh, it's a psychedelic. You're just doing drugs in the wood or it's another form of escapism. It's another, you know, it's another non-answer. Uh, but for whatever reason, it, it planted the seed in my mind. I heard these stories of people having these big changes. And, you know, I guess just bored at work. I started doing more research, saw there was some reasoning behind it. And no matter what, uh, th there wasn't like a clear, concise answer. It was just some part of my subconscious was just telling me like, whatever you're doing right now is not working. We don't know what that is, but at least it is a chance. And you start doing some research on your own. I mean, like digging into it, finding out whether or not there's any legitimate science behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And so there was a little bit, um, not not a lot, because of the illegality of these substances, similar to cannabis. It's just been nearly impossible to do any real research. But there was a lot of anecdotal evidence. There was some early scientific uh, evidence. And to me, what appealed to me, I think, the most versus some other. Uh, drugs that might be recreational or considered recreational was it has this rich sort of indigenous tradition. So I think in my mind, it was like, okay, well, I don't really know what this is, but at least there's this cultural dynamic to it. There's a ceremony around it. That'd be very cool to experience. And that was kind of, I think my, my uh, lie to myself to like, or not lie to myself, but it was my entryway to, to make it okay that I wasn't just in my room, you know, doing some drugs or something like that. So for whatever reason, my intuition just guided me there. And so I, I made that decision of like, all right, this, this job's not working. Uh, this whatever lifestyle's not working. So I essentially put in my two weeks notice. Um, fortunately, I had saved enough money to where I had some financial flexibility. Um, and I essentially just bought a one-way ticket to Peru and uh, after doing some research of spots that I felt comfortable with. And so I, I ventured there and, and went to this ayahuasca retreat. And I mean, that must have been, you know, not just an eye opener, but I mean, you show up in Peru, a foreign country to take a substance that you're not sure whether or not you're getting the real deal or whatever. I mean, explain, talk, talk a little bit about that first journey, that journey there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot of mixed emotions. I mean, it was a big uh, change and I didn't know if I was making uh, the right decision. I thought it was kind of crazy of leaving this good job and, and just going. But on the other side, there was a sigh of relief of just traveling and getting out of this bubble where I could kind of self-reflect of how bad or how long I had let it go and some of this really reckless behavior that I was engaged in. So it was, it was, a, it was a big contemplative moment. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, uh, I've, had, I've, I've learned to trust strong intuition uh, impulses, and they've almost always led me correctly. It was, it was one of the reasons I joined the military. And this was almost the next sort of transition of almost a life-saving impulse, which I'm, I'm fortunate I do have. Um, and so when I went there, kind of nervous, but, you know, had the excitement of being in a new culture. And, and Peru had been in Latin America before, so it was nice to be back. I'd done a decent amount of research, so I felt secure of where I was going. Um, the place was located in, this, in the city called Iquitos, Peru, which is pretty remote. It's still, it's a sizable city, but it's pretty remote. And um, you have to fly in there. You have to take a boat. You have to, it's, it's, it's a journey to get to the retreat, but the retreat itself was beautiful. It was isolated. It was in the middle of the Amazon. Uh, and so still kind of nervous, especially 
have never done really any psych, never done any psychedelics to ayahuasca, which is a pretty uh, powerful one. It was, it was even leading up to the, the first ceremony. It was just, uh, you know, it was, it was almost like going into selection again of like, I don't know what, 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 uh, what meat grinder I'm going to go through, but I'm, I'm here for a reason. Talk a little bit about the experience. I mean, so, so you, you arrive at the retreat, who you met, how did they talk to you? How did they prep you for it? And talk me through your first trip. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I got there and then, you know, the first day it's, you know, everybody's meeting each other for the first time. It was uh, other travelers from all over the world, uh, a group about, let's say, 15 to 20. I can't remember exactly, but it was all very nice people, all there for their own reasons, all there to heal. Uh, some had been returned. Uh, they had gone before and were speaking very highly about the positive benefits they had experienced. Um, others, it was their first time. And so sort of the first day you get there, you know, find where you're going to stay, uh, kind of do the tour around it. Uh, kind of the basic intro, um, and then generally how these retreats work, the the kind of more modern ayahuasca retreats um, are a week long, and then you have the opportunity to participate in four ayahuasca ceremonies um, during that time. And so the first one will it'll generally happen across the week. Um, and so for people who don't know, ayahuasca is, you know, it's been used for thousands of years by indigenous tribes across the Amazon. Uh, for, you know, health, mental health, spirituality, connectivity of the tribe. Uh, you know, they, they, in their belief, it helps them sort of guide through the, the forest as well. So the healers, uh, commonly called shaman or coranderos, are the ones that are the experts. They guide the ceremony. They're the ones that have been doing sort of training with these plants so that they're sort of the experts of how to do it. Um, and it's basically the combination of two Amazonian plants, a vine and a leaf. And the combination of those, uh, causes this very intense psychedelic experience when you, they, they're, they're, they're cooked together and distilled and made into this tea. And so when you drink the tea, uh, you have this experience that lasts for about four hours and brings up subconscious trauma. It often brings up very strong emotions, uh, that you haven't been dealing with, which is why it's potentially very beneficial. Do you remember this? Why? Uh, do you remember what happened during your trip, or did somebody have to inform you? Or when you say it brings up all these emotions, you are not consciously aware of what you're doing. No, well, you are in it. I mean, you 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 don't necessarily have the control over the experience, but you are in it. It's almost like a lucid dream uh, on steroids, where it's it's sort of like in this dreamlike world where you understand what's going on and you recognize things, but it doesn't necessarily follow earth physics or, or awake physics. And so you might, it's almost like, you know, those dreams where you have, and when you go to sleep very anxious and then your dream interprets that anxiety of, you know, being late for a test or being late for a meeting. So it kind of operates in the same way where the hallucinations that you have are oftentimes metaphors for, some trauma, but sometimes it's direct too. So we've worked with a lot of veterans that actually had childhood trauma and it'll transport them right back to the scene of where it happened to where they have to not necessarily, it's not sort of this punishment. It's not that they have to experience it, but it allows them to process it. It allows them to actually complete the story to where it's not this sort of point of contention that continues to eat away at them. It's through that, that, that processing through that experiencing the motion that they're able to move through. And because you're in this sort of altered state, 
it almost allows you to zoom out from yourself. So you're not, it's not like you're experiencing that punishment again. You're almost in a protected sort of uh, side of it. So you do remember it, but it can be, there can be so much and there can be so much visual input and things that are even beyond comprehension or beyond words that, you know, might fade or you might not remember. But generally speaking, most people will, re will remember how it sort of manifested in their head. And do, do, does the counselor or the shaman, the person who's taking you through this experience, have they sat down and spoken to you about what might come out so that they at least are there to help you get through or they just experience it with you? Yeah, so absolutely, absolutely. Generally, with and that's sort of what we've created with heroic hearts of a more sort of streamlined approach to where people are fully prepared and they they know how what 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 to what they're in for uh, without bringing expectations. We don't want people to you know go there being like this is exactly what I want, but we want them to know what to be prepared for. Um, and so at these retreat centers, they will talk about it. They there's this whole practice of intentions of why, what are you looking to explore here? So if you have anxiety, if you have depression, is that like, what are you looking to find the, the cause of that? Are you looking heart, your emotions? Are you looking to sort of figure out what's causing these negative patterns? So they will talk to you. They will sort of guide you through it. And then actually during the ceremony, um, how it happens is you go in there, they generally happen at night. There's this ceremonial hut called a maloka. And people walk in, they, they're sitting around it with the, the shaman either at the center or at uh, one of the, the main points. And um, everybody will take their turn drinking the ayahuasca tea. And then they'll go sit down. And then generally within the half an hour to an hour, then that's when the psychedelic experience starts to hit. And in each tradition is different. Like I said, it, 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 there's a lot of different tribes that use it differently. But generally, there's a singing component. And so that's sort of the training of the shaman where they, their songs are called Icaros, and they, they learn them from their own experience of the, the, in their tradition, the plants teach them these songs, and it helps them guide sort of the, the trauma or the, the bad um, energy. And, and so people go in there, and so you're in, you're in the psychedelic state, but then it's being guided by the songs, by the, the emotional nature of the songs. And it's actually pretty unique. It's one of those things that's very hard to describe to somebody that hasn't experienced it, but the vast majority of people, when they come out of it, they're like, I, I don't know how you can do this experience without the songs. It's such an integral part of it. And even now, when, when we're doing modern sort of psychotherapy with psychedelics, like you mentioned the Johns Hopkins using um, psilocybin, or uh, there's the studies with MDMA, or any of these mind altering substances, it almost always has a musical component. Because what they found is that we're so connected to music uh, especially in these altered states, that it really helps us um, guide us through these traumas. It really helps us guide or uh, be sort of a messenger through through these journeys, but then also helps us purge some of these strong emotions. So if the song kind of has more of a intense beat, that might be something that you need to really get deep into it. If it has a softer, more emotional, then that might, you you tend to hear a lot of people start crying or start really having those sort of emotions. And so through the process, it's a very all experiential sort of thing. So, and so when I, you were, after, after you did, you had your first experience when you came out of it, became more aware, became lucid again. What yeah. was the first thoughts that you had? My first thoughts were what the hell is that? <laughs> my, uh, my first few ceremonies were, were intense. They're, they're essentially all at war. Uh, and one that kind of gave me respect for it because it wasn't this, happy-go-lucky, you know, 
trip escapism through the woods. It was actual work. It was intensity. It was something that I didn't understand, but that had such power over me. And so I had, I came into it with some fear, but really a lot of respect. Um, and so for me, my journey was very hard because just I've, I've, I've learned so much, especially in the military of mine to compartmentalize and to control all the variables around me that this substance that you kind of have to relinquish control and you kind of have to go with sort of the flow of it uh, was very hard for me. I didn't want to like give up my conscientiousness, my sobriety. I didn't want to like go into it, but you have to. And eventually you are like, it's going to win no matter, you're just making it more difficult. So my, through the process, my whole uh, learning experience, which it actually in the experience in a, in a hard to explain way, it actually guided me to learn that uh, was to relinquish this control, was to sort of surrender myself to it, to allow uh, some of this compartmentalized trauma to escape uh, because I was just holding on to it so dearly. And so for a while, it was just me fighting against it and just uh, puking a lot, just having this very intense like sweating and just not being able to stay still and just very, very intense, very uncomfortable. Um, but because of that struggle, it allowed me to better Afterwards, after all four ceremonies, uh, I felt relieved. I felt lighter. My brain felt like it had been almost reset in a better, recalibrated to where it was actually functioning much better. And those benefits continued to last. So on the immediate side, I just felt sort of this immediate sort of, you know, all one connectivity where my brain was seemed to be working better. It seemed to be better connected to my body. Uh, it just seemed to be lighter to where I wasn't holding these the same weight that I felt uh, was you know somewhat crushing me and and when, when I was in Tampa at my job, uh, but then even continuous, I just continued to notice uh, changes and benefits to where things in the past that would trigger my anxiety or make me more susceptible all of a sudden didn't. I could just kind of sidestep that anxiety and I could uh, react to the situation without this burden of being having this anxious uh, reaction side of it. So, you know, and I just saw all these other amazing stories, too, of people overcoming some pretty severe stuff, uh, whether OCD, anxiety, um, neuroticism. Um, and so just really affirmed that there was something to this beyond what the stigmas and the common knowledge have led me to believe. And that's what brought you to wanting to make sure you made this or try to help make this available to other veterans. So you decided to start the Heroic Hearts Project. Is that right? Absolutely. So that was the inspiration of it. Um, after trying a lot of stuff, like I said, this was such a huge relief. And so one, it gave me respect for you know plants in general, even more so for cannabis. I was, I was always to each their own. It wasn't for me, but I didn't really see the medical value. And so after this, I really understood of like, there's a lot more to these um these plants, these substances, and we realize that we give credit to uh, just because it doesn't fall into the traditional scientific model. Um, and so that was the inspiration for our carts. As you mentioned, the veteran community is going through a suicide epidemic. And even those that don't make that, that, that decision are actively destroying their lives, whether through alcoholism, whether through, you know, just ruining the family, their social network. Um, and so at that point, you know, I didn't really know what I had, or I didn't really know what the concept was, but I did know there's something to this. And um, it might not be for everybody, but for those that are on a similar path to me, I wanted to make it easier. I wanted to educate and facilitate so they didn't have to do like this Google search into the deep web to try to figure out what was going on here. 
And so that was the start of Heroic Hearts, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. So one to educate, um, as you know, you know, veterans kind of have their own language, like any other profession of, if you hear it from a veteran, it's probably going to, you know, be more appealing or take more hold than if it comes from somebody else. And so approach this topic in, in sort of a way that veterans will understand, but then also facilitate. So for the past four and a half years, we've created this program where a veteran comes to us, the vast majority have tried everything the VA has had to offer, fallen through the cracks at some point, been on all sorts of medication, uh, and just were left almost hopeless, almost at the end of the rope. Uh, so they fill out an application. We do basic safety checks, uh, making sure there's not contraindications, making sure they're generally healthy because this can be an intense experience. Um, we provide coaching, sort of that preparation, integration uh, support I was talking about, like a month or two out where they, once they get there, they're still going to be apprehensive, but they know what they're getting into and they know how to handle it better than I was prepared. And then we work with a lot of different centers around the world and each one we vetted to make sure that's safe, make sure that they're aligned, make sure it's sustainable, uh, make sure that they're comfortable working with vets because it is a very specific um, demographic to work with. And then the aftercare, which is the most important. And this is what we always relate to everybody. Whether, whatever it is, you know, there's no magic pill. There's no one size fits all uh, solution to this. Psychedelics can uh, really help out traditional therapy, traditional talk therapy. It can um, get people tremendous breakthroughs in a very short period of time. And it can have a lot of long lasting benefits, both on a psychological and a physical basis. But the person still needs to make the right decisions. They still need to take that opportunity to change their life in a positive way. So if somebody goes from, you know, one of our retreats straight back to the bar, straight back to, you know, whatever else they're doing, uh, it's probably not going to have as much of a benefit. But if they really take that time afterward when they feel great, where they know what they're capable of and make positive life choices where, you know, they incorporate things in their life of exercising more, eating healthier, you know, meditation, yoga, a lot of people pick up then it's really going to change your life and transition. All of this is creating sort of those those positive connections in our brain, and this helps reset that so you're not uh, beholden to the negative connections that we just kept building up, building up. Um, and so that's... Yeah. I was glad, I'm sorry. No, so that, that's sort of the program we've created and the after the community, and, and I'm sure as you know, of what you've been trying to build is we need... the mutual support peer support is the absolute key to all of this we need to re we need to start supporting each other we need to check in with each other we need to make sure others are okay uh to build those networks and that is the absolute key well talk to me a little bit about this partnership that you've now formed with imperial college in the uk yeah absolutely so ayahuasca is sort of the start obviously the start of my story uh but you know all these all these substances again cannabis psychedelics psilocybin they all work uh, as long as when, when you're using it in, in sort of this therapeutic fashion, especially psychedelics, they all work in a similar sort of way. Each one has a, a slightly different chemical variation. And so research will in the future show what those differences are. But at the end of the day, they're all very powerful. They can all be very effective uh, for veterans. And so we've worked with ayahuasca. We've worked with a substance called Ibogaine. We've worked with ketamine clinics um, and also psilocybin. And so this this research because psilocybin, as you mentioned at the top of the show, is getting more and more popularity. It's a little bit uh, more palatable. It's a little, little bit more digestible than some of these other psychedelics, which are still stigmatized. 
So more people are familiar with mushrooms and psilocybin. There's more businesses that are starting that are, you know, figuring out an economic model. And so there's more research like Johns Hopkins, like Stanford, uh, all these, all these major universities. So we decided to do our own study, uh, like we mentioned before, where a very underdiagnosed problem with military veterans is the head trauma is what factor does that play into what we're seeing in a psychological basis? What, what's being often diagnosed as PTSD exclusively. So, um, we're doing our normal retreats as we would with ayahuasca, uh, for American veterans and Canadian veterans will be in Jamaica for UK veterans. Cause we have a UK branch, uh, it'll be in the Netherlands. Um, so these veterans will go there, uh, and participate in two major psilocybin, um, ceremonies, which will be supported. There'll be integration. They'll be in a very beautiful, comfortable spot. And then alongside our partnership with Imperial college of London, they will be taking results of those applicants that are willing to do it. So it's an observational study. There's no obligation on veterans, but you know we, we try to track as much data as possible. And so we're going to do a whole uh, series of measurements of psychological evaluation, psychological surveys, EEGs, which is uh, the brain scans, some biological samples, really just to try to figure out what uh, effects psilocybin, bigger doses, has physically on the brain for veterans with traumatic brain injury. So we're- and We do know that there's research out there that seems to indicate that it has an anti-inflammatory response in the brain, has a neuroprotective response in the brain, correct? Absolutely. Uh, so the early research is showing uh, potential anti-inflammatory effects, which is huge for traumatic brain injury, that the inflammation causes all sorts of imbalance in hormone levels, which has a lot of other uh, bad effects online, uh, possible neurogenesis, so creating new neurons, and possible increased plasticity. So those that have damage, increased plasticity can kind of rewire the brain to make it function almost normal, uh, despite whatever the injury is. You're fighting so back that, damage. Exactly. And so that's what we're trying to find. So these, for these psilocybin, we're looking for vets with brain trauma, whether diagnosed or just a, a high exposure to what we mentioned before, concussive force, mortar blast, IED blast. Um, and then uh, get them to these retreats and it'll all be uh, covered. And, and if they are willing, do the research. And so our partnership with Imperial College is, is wonderful. They've been at the forefront under Robin Carhart-Harris and Professor Nutt of advancing psilocybin research. They're very well respected. Uh, they have a lot of uh, great data already. And so we're honored to be working with them on, on this project. And if people wanted to, to figure out how they can get involved to help veterans get through your hero, heroic heroes program or, or how would they, how would they do it? How do they get a hold of you? Yeah. So in terms of that, uh, in terms of those retreats or our ayahuasca retreats, people can go to heroicheartsproject.org. We are currently recruiting for the psilocybin retreats. Uh, we're also looking for fundraising. So if you want to help us support and, and really help us advance science, please reach out through the website heroicheartsproject.org. Uh, we're also on all major social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all Heroic Hearts Project. Just look that up. Um, we are a nonprofit, so donations are the way that we move forward. It's the gas in the tank. Uh, so anybody who is willing to want to help vets, this has been one of the most effective ways of, you know, ending veteran suicide, of, of curing sort of the, the PTSD epidemic. So please, if you have the means to support reach out to us. Uh, it's very easy to donate through the website. Um, and we also offer uh, specialty retreats for, for 
those that want to experience it with veterans. So we've had some executive retreats where we've had CEOs, athletes, veterans. It's it's pretty uh, pretty, uh, pretty impactful, powerful uh, ceremonies when we have all these different groups together. And we're going to start seeing in the future here lots of different groups coming together because I'm guaranteeing that this entire idea of PTSD and you know mental trauma, though it may not be concussive trauma, the trauma that we just experienced from this pandemic is going to be with us for a long time. And there is a lot of uh, science that says that this may also be helpful with people who've had to go through that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we, the, mental health is something we really need to come to terms with. As you said, COVID has just made it even worse. Um, and fortunately, we are living in a, in a time when there are more tools, but it is something we need to take seriously, You know, whether it's cannabis, whether it's psychedelics, there needs to be more funding. There needs to be more research, which there is not. Uh, and there needs, as you mentioned also, there needs to be funding for things that aren't necessarily making these major companies a lot of money um, because there are very effective treatments out there. And mental health needs to be one of the main focuses going forward because it is dramatically affecting a lot of lives. And that has huge ripples in terms of economic prosperity, in terms of country stability, in terms of all levels of stability. Absolutely. Well, Jesse, I can't thank you enough for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. I know people are going to find this really exciting. So I'm going to thank you. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.